This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Brian. I'm Stan. And we're going to talk about The Andromeda Strain, a 1969 novel by Michael Crichton. And it's... uh, it came out in 69, but it came out before uh, the Apollo uh, 11 moon landing. Not much before, but before. And uh, I think a lot of the critics, uh, contemporary critics, um, didn't like how successful it was. And all the reviews I tweeted at uh, you, Brian, um, panned it except for the mainstream ones. So I thought that that was really, really interesting. All the science fiction journals, magazines, uh, reviewed it very negatively. Uh, the closest they came was, you know, grudging. You know, it's not completely terrible sort of thing. But uh, wh- why do you think that is? Uh, two reasons. Uh, one is there's, a, especially in American science fiction, a traditional defense of the ghetto against uh, interlopers. You know, there's the sense of we've been doing this right all these years. And who are these outsiders? Because they're always outsiders, you know, mm-hmm. um, to come in and uh, take advantage of our tropes. Uh, and that happens that happens all the time. I remember in the 50s and 60s, there was some resentment of Ray Bradbury because he didn't come up through fandom. Wow. Um, well, that's there, bullshit because he was he was. Uh, I, know, I know. But um, and then. Uh, you see it whenever a mainstream writer does um, SF. So I've seen arguments about uh, Doris Lessing with her Shikasta books. Um, uh, you know, whenever um, any mainstream writer dips their toe into the genre. Um, and then um, I guess the second reason is, um, well, no, that's enough of a big reason for now. I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty deep uh, a pretty deep feeling. Yeah, um, I, like I was. I was reading, parsing, you know, each sentence, and one of the things they did, which I, I I like, is they do this thing called spoiling the book, right? Telling you the ending, telling you the whole plot. Um, to me, that that is never a problem. But I think one of the reasons they did that was not because, you know, it was just to ruin the book for you, but rather to show exactly what was wrong with it. Um, and so, what I also noticed is that basically they got all the facts wrong. Like it, it's almost like they were reading a different text and mm. they weren't because, um, you know, like just kind of sloppy, sloppy facts about, you know, what happened in the, uh, you know, the actual plot. And, you know, if you're a book reviewer and you write a lot of reviews, I guess it's possible you don't take a lot of notes that you're going to get a lot of the facts wrong. But, um, a lot of it also was just interpretation. Uh, so they see something and it goes, uh, you know, to the worst possible interpretation. Or, you know, like when Luke Burridge does a review of uh, a Robert J. Sawyer book, I agree with every point he makes. I still enjoyed the book. He hated it, right? Hmm. Um, but all the points he makes about the bad writing. And there, are, there is actually some bad writing in this book. Although even... You know, the, those who dislike the book intensely uh, of those reviews, some of them, um, one of them anyways, uh, did say, you know, it wasn't the worst writing, although most of the others made the point that it was terrible writing. 
Right. Um, right. So that's sort of a subjective thing, but one of I guess my big criticism of the book, and I think it might actually be a positive, and especially it, it, it it's also included in the movie. Um, I think what's so funny is that had they done nothing, nothing would have happened, <laughs> right? <laughs> All the problems that happen in the novel are caused by their own fuck-ups. Their mistakes are what almost kill everybody, Right. And the only only the fact that they realize they fucked up prevents them from com- basically making things a lot worse or you know destroying themselves. And I think that that that's not a common criticism uh, that I've heard around. But if you think about it, uh, if it was going to mutate as it did, which it did, <laughs> um, and they didn't do anything if wildfire facility didn't exist and they didn't you know threaten it with nuclear weapons or anything like that it would have just been like some uh you know minor plague that comes in and you know stops killing people just like all the other diseases don't you think well well go ahead steam i don't want to keep dominating the show go ahead uh i i think they might not like it because it wasn't that that there wasn't like aliens, there wasn't that much. It was just like stuff. That's the reason why I can see they might not like it. But I actually really liked it. It was like good old 60s uh, science fiction, like kind of running a Star Trek a little bit. The good old days when you can trust the government and uh, the scientists are out for for the good of humanity and that kind of stuff. There's there's something to that. uh, I think it is a bit Star Trek-y. One of the things that this book has that... uh, that I think is very well done, um, and you see it in everything else, but is preceded slightly by Star Trek, is that uh, self-destruct sequence. Yeah, right? yeah. And the late 60s is when Star Trek comes out. Um, you've got uh, a self-destruct sequence in there, and then, of course, Star Trek does it in basically every show after as well. But you start seeing that self-destruct sequence in... All sorts of things that aren't, uh, strictly speaking, science fiction. And so, like, that's... Uh, like mad, actually. Like, Russia, America mad kind of thing. Mm. Mutually assured destruction. Yeah, I don't know. It's like everything was in hell, we'll just kill everything. Yeah, well, um, I was thinking, like, um, uh, basically every nuclear sub-movie, right, has a... A self-destruct sequence that running down the hallway that happens in the film and and in the book um that is is sort of the plot machinations that is very anti-sf it's very film-like and um one of the other things that i thought was really interesting is that in uh reading about why michael Crichton wrote it uh he had read the ipcris file by len dayton oh. you guys read that book yeah part of it yeah yeah, so there's a film version that came out three years after uh, the book. Michael Caine? Was, yeah, Michael Caine, right. And the Ipcris file had a lot of that sort of um, – a lot of the what we would think of as modern uh, airport fiction tropes. You know, like it's, it's sort of international jet-setting businessmen, uh, high-level government, you know, hyper-competent male – sort of thing and it also had a conspiracy theory uh you know sort of high technology that's the the macguffin in that one is uh, brainwashing 
Mm-hmm. So they're going to take over uh, uh, and start infiltrating uh, nuclear secrets sort of thing. So apparently um, Crichton really dug that book. And then the movie came out three years after the book. Um, and then he started writing the year, it sounds like, the year the movie came out. He started writing the book. And then three years after his book came out, that is The Andromeda Strain, his movie came out of the same thing. And I was thinking it is almost as if the book was written for film. And if you know anything about Crichton's sort of career, yeah. Yeah. you know he loves film. He He's directed films he's written he's, everything he's written except for airframe basically has been turned into a film well it isn't and tv too wasn't uh er his sure sure yeah no i i that's a fascinating take um jesse i hadn't thought about that way but it, it makes a lot of sense i mean icarus file comes about in part um if i remember rightly it's been a while uh to try and not do as much bond and there's a lot right. of there's a lot of like really boring research work um, that is not you know showy um, Bond commando stuff. Um, what was that? And so that's you know when I'm rereading a drama strain, I get the feel of it. There's so much that's just really picky, fiddly science research, mm-hmm. bureaucratic operation. And when you get you know in the beginning, you get um, pilots and military guys. And they're either killed or they're useless. Yep. You know, I mean, so I, in a in a sense, this should be kind of the science, the classic science fiction fans' um, great book. I mean, as you said, Steen, this this feels like you know you've got the trusted scientists who save the world, um, and so that's that's kind of surprising in some ways to to see. My I showed the movie to my kids uh, last year. Because it was on Netflix, and uh, I was really surprised watching it now by a few things. One was how ruthlessly hard science it is. There's basically nothing else in the movie. I mean, the characters, as some of the reviewers point out, don't really matter. Um, there's no politics around it. It's just solving these problems one after the other. Um, and I thought, okay, Hollywood probably couldn't make this movie now. It, it yeah. would never be greenlit. Um, and the other was how how cold it was, how restrained everybody is. It was almost like watching an upper-class British uh, drama, how mm. you know people are desperately trying not to shout at each other, not to tear up, um, how restrained it was. And I don't remember that from the book, um, but the movie was really like chilly in that respect. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw the movie first, and then then I read uh, heard the book, and, and they're almost identical. Like when I was uh, listening to it, it was like I was seeing – the pictures of what I saw on the screen as like, except for like the lady scientist who had um, uh, that problem instead, it was a male scientist who had the, uh, um, the blinking light issue. It was almost exactly this. There was no difference. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it was I like heard. a movie perfectly in my head as I heard it. And it was exactly what I saw on the screen. Well, I, nice. think it, it's I think it's always did that before with, um, he did one of the great um, haunted house movies of all time. Um, and he based it on a Shirley Jackson novel, which is also awesome. And likewise, it was very, very close to the book. This is the Haunted yeah, Hill House. He's really, I mean, if you think, I love the opening title sequence of the movie because it does what the book visually does on the page, right? Mm. It throws you endless sort of data sheets 
Um, it's it's kind of experimental in like the Alfred Bester's kind of way, although not quite that extreme. But it's it's like it's a document dump, you know. And even even uh, at the beginning, you know, of the paper book, it says, you know, this is classified material. But uh, in the film, they do that as well. But they say um, it's soon to be um, declassified or something. Um, it's not illegal. Don't worry. <laughs> and then the ne- very next thing it shows after it's not illegal. Don't worry. It shows top secret eyes only punishment of two hundred thousand dollar fine and 20 years in jail. Right. Um, and. What Crichton's doing in this book with all that sort of the document dump is he's overloading the reader with sort of versim- versimilitude, right? You know, it's, it's like, oh, this has to be real. Right. And I remember when uh, I was reading Eaters of the Dead, mm-hmm. uh, he did that exact same uh, thing. That's a really cool book, too. Have you read that one, Steen? That's the Never heard one of it. Oh, it got turned into uh, a movie Warrior? called 13th Warrior, which is – it's an okay movie, but – um, it's a retelling of Beowulf uh, with um, uh, a supposed document. I can't even remember if it's real or not, but I have a feeling it's not real, just like everything Crichton writes is completely bullshit. Um, but it's very uh, – it's like this, um, I don't know, 11th century uh, Arab uh, document that says, you know, I went on this journey to the north and I met these strange warriors – with long beards and pale hair, um, Which, and they had this adventure. It totally. Vikings. Well, they are because yeah. it's it's based on on the connection between uh, Vikings, Russians, and Byzantium, um, mm-hmm. which was which is really deep. I could talk about that for hours. So stop me. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's like he does it. This is a translation. This is I'm putting it all together. Here's the documents at the end of this. Uh, it's not in the audiobook, but at the end of the paper book or the textbook, uh, when you get to the end, it, there's like a bibliography. Apparently, it's completely bullshit. Everything, <laughs> everything's completely bullshit. And there's one sequence that I wrote down or copied uh, down here that I wanted to read, and I just p- wanted to point out that this is bullshit too, even though it sounds awesome. I think he's just like. He's just Mr. Bullshit, and it, but he's so good at bullshitting that you, you buy it. So this is um, a part that was very, very much. This is so much in the tradition of regular SF, as opposed to the quote-unquote techno-thriller, right? This is the sort of thing that a regular SF reader would say, yup, yum, yum, right? This is the good stuff. So I just want to read this bit. He recalled the remark of George Thompson, the British biochemist. I looked him up. He doesn't exist. (laughs) Who called enzymes, quote, the matchmakers of life. It was true. Enzymes acted as catalysts for all chemical reactions by providing a surface for two molecules to come together and react upon. There were hundreds and thousands, perhaps millions of enzymes, each existing solely to aid in a single chemical reaction. Without enzymes, there could be no chemical reactions. Without chemicals, there could be no life. Or could there? It was a long-standing problem. Early in the planning of wildfire, the question had been posed. How do you study a form of life unlike any you know? How would you know that it was alive? This was not an academic matter. Biology, as George Wald had said, I didn't look him up, but I assume he doesn't exist either, was a unique science because it could not define its subject matter. Nobody had a definition for life. And this is something I... Uh, heard, and I don't know if it's from this book, when I was a kid, I think my uncle might have told me this, 
he might have like quoted this exact thing. And I'm like, oh, this sounds real. <laughs> Nobody knew what it was, really. The old definitions, an organism that showed ingestion, excretion, metabolism, reproduction, and so on, were worthless. One could always find exceptions. The group had finally concluded that the energy conversion was the hallmark of life. All living organisms in some way took in energy as food or sunlight and converted it to another form of energy or put it to use. Viruses were the exception to this rule, but the group was prepared to define viruses as non-living. For the next meeting, Levitt was asked to prepare a rebuttal to the definition. He pondered it for a week and returned with three objects, a swatch of black cloth, a watch, and a piece of granite. He set them down before the group and said, Gentlemen, I give you three living things. <laughs> he challenged the team to prove they were not living. He placed the black cloth in the sunlight. It became warm. This, he announced, was an example of the conservation radiant energy, uh, conservation of energy, conversion of radiant energy into heat. It was objected that this was merely passive energy absorption, absorption, not conversion. It was also objected that the, in the conversion, it could not be purposeful. It served no function. How do you know that it is not purposeful, Levitt had demanded. Then they turned to the watch. Levitt pointed to the radium dial, which glowed in the dark. Decay was taking place, and light was being produced. The men argued that this was merely a release of potential energy held in the unstable electron levels. But there was growing confusion. Was, Levitt was making his point. Finally, they came to the granite. This is alive, Levitt said. It is living, breathing, walking, and talking. Only we cannot see it because it is happening too slowly. Rock has a lifespan of 3 billion years. We have a lifespan of 60 or 70 years. We cannot see what is happening to this rock for the same reason we cannot make out the tune on a record being played at the rate of one revolution every century. And the rock, for its part, is not aware of our existence because we are alive only for a brief instant of its lifespan. To it, we are like flashes in the dark. Pure science fiction. You can imagine reading this in Galaxy in the 1950s. Totally. But it's really, I mean, it's it's not even like low level science fiction. It's it's the as you, I think you tweeted something like it's hard science fiction, right? Totally hard SF. It's all, I mean, it's got charts. It has lots of data in it. No, that's a great passage, Jesse. I've forgotten that. Okay, I have to I have to back you guys both up though because this book has a weird place for me. I read this when I was about eight. And it oh. just totally destroyed my mind. It was like, I mean, I mean, I was reading it just trying to make sense of it. And uh, I kept coming back to it year after year to try and claw my way through it. Um, this is, I think, where I first saw binary numbers. Mm. It took me a while to like, figure that code out. You know? um, and so this, this book was just like, you know, when I first saw the movie, I must have been, I don't know, 12 or 13. I was so excited. And I remember being really upset that they had lasers instead of darts at the end. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's so, that's you can stick to the book, man, you know, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's weird how, how, um, you know, I wondered, did this help get me interested in hard SF as a kid? Probably did. Uh, I interpreted it as SF. I didn't see it as anything else. Um, you know, and, uh, and it's weird ever since Crichton's gone on from strength to strength, you know, I keep thinking, you oh, know, there's Andromeda at the back of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think this works so well as SF. I mean, it's, um, I, I think there's a sad thing in some of the SF criticisms, which is 
they criticize it for not having good characters and not having interesting themes, not having good plot. Those are often the criticisms that mainstream writers make of science fiction. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what Niven's like. Niven's always the same way, and I really like Niven too. Yeah. If oh, we get good enough good. Uh, uh, feelings from TV, you should have something that's a little more more concrete and realistic, if you ask me. <laughs> you know, like uh, at that work, we don't all go crazy like you do on 24 and, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's not how we are. I mean, we're more like the scientists, I hope, you know, rational, ordinary. But the one thing I, I, I was thinking is that is that when when I when um, I was listening to it, it sounded a lot to me like also the Corb the Forbin not Corbin the Forbin project too. Yeah, right. the same feel is like is like the, you know, TV is not black and white anymore, and and everything's going to be solved with our brains. That it reminded me quite a bit of that. That, well, uh, except movie. except the Forbin project doesn't end well, right? Yeah, that's where we get Colossus. What? That... What do you mean? I, I thought that was a good <laughs> I thought that made sense, and that was a very intelligent thing to do. Steen welcomes our robot yeah. overlord. I know. I had to give a talk last month on the future of technology. It was a lot of fun, and uh, at one point I was talking about uh, high scale AI and the possibilities of of administrative scale AI. So the two opposed polls I put up on the screen, one was the Forbin Project, and the other was Ian Banks. So, you know, um, and it was great because about one quarter of the audience knew the Forbin Project. Right. About one quarter had read Ian Banks, and one half had no idea what I was talking about. So it was, you know, it was kind of fun to have. One is benign, uh, treating humans as nice pets, you know, and the other one is uh, uh, monstrous uh, yeah. we get humans what uh, using humans as cogs in its machine right yeah look i mean the extreme form of that is actually uh, i have no mouth and i must scream um yeah, but yeah right. you know forbin was the you know the the real clear one um i i admire the 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 optimism but i i think there's a there may be another reason why we we all admire this there's a if, if i can summon eric rabkin here mm. um and this came up in one of the reviews, which is there's an interesting link to Dante throughout this. Mm. I mean, what we have, you know, is the station could be anywhere. I mean, the wildfire can be, you know, in a mountain, it could be in space, it could be underwater, mm. but it's underground. And we get a series of levels going down further and further, step by step underground. And that has a resonance for us. I mean, there are all kinds of stories that do that hidden race novels. I mean, there's, you can play with some psychological archetypes here. I mean, for me as a Gothic person, I always look for the basement. Um, but I think, I think Dante is clearly evoked that, you know, we have, we're going to hell and, uh, but, and that that's borne out because we have every level has a different function, just like in Dante. Um, at the very bottom, we have the nuclear pile, which that's right. at the end could wipe us all out. Or turn the world into hell, um, and by you go down into hell, and at the end they manage to come up and leave, and they enter a better world. So the next mm-hmm. book after the Inferno is, of course, the Purgatorio. Uh-huh. So that's an improvement. Uh, you know, thinking about the movie with that final—I think it's a final image of uh, of uh, the ocean, as you have paradise. You know, that we go from red to blue, we go from burning to calmness, um, that, um, you know, we've succeeded. There's also the additional medieval echo of the harrowing of hell. You know, it's a medieval story where Christ comes back to earth to go through hell and free all the souls of the good people and who were sent there usually before uh, his coming, before uh, 32 CE. 
and uh, and to free them out. Um, so you know, our hero, our intrepid scientists, go into hell. They learn a lot. They discover something more about the fundamental nature of the universe, like the passage you mentioned, Jesse, about uh, what is life, which of mm-hmm. course is a classic religious question. Um, and they win. They have de- desperate struggles, but they free and they save the world, which is of course what uh, Christ is supposed to do in Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do like that. At the very bottom is a nuclear. <laughs> it, it is very. Um, it, it's. It's. What's cool about it is that it's a Cold War story where the Russians aren't the bad guys, right? Right. Uh, we talked about briefly before the podcast started about the Bedford incident, the film, um, and uh, and we also I sent you the link to that great BBC Saturday Night Theater production of. Um, it's called a thousand uh, oh, thousand suns. Yeah, that was awesome. Terrific sort of techno thriller set in the future. Just like I mean, w- one of the things that they said in the in some of the reviews, yeah, it's set in the future. It's not this book's not set in the future. It's set in the past, right? This is all sort of a post factual, recent past report sort of thing. But it's gadgets are all futuristic right the computer is a little more futuristic than anything else there's technology that's being suppressed there's uh, facts that are being suppressed but it's all um it's like 2001 except 2001 last year um and you didn't know that 2001 was happening and so um yeah there's there's a lot of cool things going on one of the other criticisms that was in there and i thought this was actually a little more accurate is that uh, they they said, you know, like a lot of writers of of uh, SF who don't know SF, they use the shotgun approach, right? Where they just throw out a whole bunch of science fiction ideas, and then uh, yeah. So I, I think this is true. I, I mean, I don't like Margaret Atwood's writing generally. I don't like her personality. I think she's a monster. Oh, uh, I know. But um, is that legal in Canada to, to be mean to her? It's probably not because she's Canadian. That's why we're mean to her. I'm flouting the law. Um, <laughs> in any case, um, I think that that's right. She she does pick and choose like it's a buffet table, um, and yet she's she's fairly familiar. Um, very interesting to me. I think this is maybe the most interesting fact that nobody has mentioned that I could see is that um, inter- it, it, the book is dedicated to. A C D M D, and and it's like something like who started it all or who first diagnosed the problem or something like that, and it's like oh. that is Arthur Conan Doyle, right? Doctor Arthur Conan Doyle, who is obviously a kind of prototype of Michael Crichton as well, because Michael Crichton is a doctor who really never practiced medicine, right? He studied medicine found that he was much better at something else and sort of did that just like uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and like Arthur Conan Doyle um he's not really a straight up science fiction writer right he's doing some sort of thing of his own um he's doing a sort of Sherlock Holmes thing he's doing a kind of um a kind of uh fantasy thing he's 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 an outsider, very much an outsider. And so when he does pick up tropes from SF, as a lot of the reviewers point out, this is not a new story. You know, the invasion of Earth from an alien bug right, uh, 
And even the reviewer, the reviewer in the Life magazine, which was glowing review, yeah, um, pointed out that you know this is a retelling of the Blob, kind of, right? Yeah, <laughs> which is it's completely legit. If you go to the Technology website um, and you know look up the things that are first in this book, you know that are that's a great website. Technology it tells you what what uh, what technologies appear in a text or whatever, and and sees if it's got any if it doesn't have any precedence then that's where it first appears is the idea anyways there's not much there there's not much new in this book there's like a, a bit of autodoc stuff and that sort of thing but he does take this shotgun approach and so things that appear in the book very briefly disappear when you see the adaptation right they take out a little bit because they have to because it's a movie um, they can't put it all in there, a seven-hour book into a into a two-hour film. But one of the things that they put in there that I thought was really interesting, or that um, Crichton put in, that is not in the book. Uh, sorry, not important to the book, but is in the book. Not important to the movie, but is kind of in the movie. Is a little s- a sequence of talking about this drug they invented and then suppressed. Oh, the cancer drug. Yeah, it's called Callosin. Yeah. And it says, Callosin was perhaps the best American secret of the last decade. <laughs> so uh, Crichton's spilling the beans, right? <laughs> Callosin was a drug developed by Jensen Pharmaceuticals in the spring of 1965, an experimental chemical designated blah, 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 blah. In short, it had been found blah, 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 blah. And then this discovery prompted further tests. It inhibited growth. An animal given the drug was never attained at full adult size um and then it, it suppresses it suppresses um any kind of cancer growth but it also kills off anything that isn't you right and because of that it's a broad spectrum antiviral kills leukemia rabies polio warts and fungus and parasites and as soon as you go off of it you're dead because you need those things to live. That'd be half of you anyway. So, yeah, I mean, you're, uh, the gut flora thing is very popular now, but that's wow. one of the things. Do you remember in the in the movie they go through all this? You know, you see them walking through the, the liquid and getting the spray tan, right? <laughs> right. They get all sorts of levels of stuff. One of the things they didn't do in the film, even though they did show a little bit of nudity and they did have, uh, you know somebody's ass being grabbed and stuff like that. But one of the things they didn't mention uh, that's in the book is you have to put this suppository up your ass so that you will kill off your gut flora because that's bad for you too. We can't contaminate, right? So not only do they clean their, you know, their skin, they clean their um, hair, they clean their fingernails, they clean their feet, they clean everything about them, right? To kill off all the infections, that are all over your body all the time. The when it says in the book, the dirtiest thing in the world is a human body or something like that. Um, they also kill off your gut flora, and then they start drinking that uh, orange juice that's very much a astronaut sort of drink, right? Tang. Yeah, the tang, and um, uh, oh, they still have coffee. You'll be pleased to hear, Steen. <laughs> <laughs> no sugar for the coffee though, and um, and and then they do the suppository to kill off like. If when these guys come out of there, they are gonna have all the problems that Callison's 
uh, given them, even though they haven't taken Callison, right? Oh, yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, you're right. Without the drug, they, they get the same effect with all the, yeah. the, the all that cleaning. So you're gonna need um, they're gonna need to be dirtied up. They are too holy. <laughs> Back <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I think that the, that leveling thing, you know, the going down the five levels, that is basically there. It's almost like a gimmick, and you can see it like a um, why the science fiction readers, uh, the science fiction writers who are reading this book are hating it. They're hating it because they see how visual it is. They they can see how well it'll work on film when they go through that those leveling, you know, going do, through the subsequent layers of cleaning. Right? You actually don't need to do that. When the doctor goes into the surgery in the film, in the book, he goes into the scrub room, right? Scrubs up, and then he goes into surgery. He doesn't go through like, you know, the you know, cleaner and cleaner levels. Like that's all bullshit. Yeah, they, right? they, they have those suits anyway. So what's the point of doing all this yeah, stuff? It's, it's bullshit, right? It's just sort of a something to do, <laughs> but it works so well as a visual medium thing, right? It's a symbol of, you know, we all know we have to wash our hands, but we're not as clean as we think we are. So we have to go through five levels. I don't think so. That was, that was very much like that kind of criticism is legit, I think. But if you think of uh, one of the things I saw that I really, really dug is the Wikipedia entry for airport fiction. That was great. Didn't you? I love that. Steen, this is a uh, <laughs> I love Wikipedia because it says, you know, you type in uh, techno thriller and that leads to, uh, you know, other it says see also. So it says, airport novel represents a literary genre that is not so much defined by its plot or cast of characters as much as it is by its social function. An airport novel is typically fairly long but fast-paced, a novel of intrigue and adventure that is stereotypically found in the reading fair offered by airport newsstands for travelers to read uh, in the rounds sitting and waiting, for, uh, I guess, in air travel. Um, so it talks about how we've had this before pulp fiction magazines right people getting on the train to go to work on the way to go home they need something to read so we had that in france they have they call them railway station novels and uh, in fact if you go to all the way to um uh rudyard kipling rudyard kipling's fiction this is hilarious and interesting was published in a railway magazine um that was uh, in India and it was for uh, British travelers, you know, working in India to have something to read while traveling across the vast distances of India. Wow. It's like, yeah, this makes total sense, right? It is, it is pulp fiction. This is, this is sort of the, where, what happened to pulp fiction is what you see at the airport, right? The kind of book you pick up at the airport. So one of the ones Steen and I read, um, that is outside of uh, mainstream SF, but very much in this genre is a novel called Lion's Game by Nelson DeMille. Oh, he's a big, he's, I haven't read that, but he's a big name, isn't he? He is a big name. And uh, Lion's Game is uh, starts with an airplane coming into landing in New York, and it lands perfectly well, but nobody gets out and they don't respond to commands. It's because everyone on board the airplane is dead, right? 
and it's some disease vector brought in from wait, an evil wait, wait. That's that's another yeah, it's the same book. plot as the strain, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Same opening. It is the same opening, and it's a terrific book. With a, the main character's got all these snappy one-liners. Um, he he works for the FBI or some government agency, and you can see why these books are popular. They they give you a super fun insight into what it's like to have the reins of political power at your fingertips. Right? One of the things they do in the movie that is not done in the book of Andromeda Strain is. They bring in the president. They mention the president in the book, but they bring in the president in the film, right? Then in the remake, and I don't know if either of you managed to get through it. I didn't. Um, the 2008 miniseries version of the Andromeda Strain is terrible. It's really wow. terrible. But it's it's basically presidents in every decision, right? He's 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 and we also all the and there's an a added scientist. So there's two women now and there's uh, backstories, love stories. It's just terrible. It's just mud, just a muddy mess, basically anti-science. Um, but it also shows the extreme end of what happens as the as the times evolve. When this book came out in 1969, there was uh, Apollo about to land. But it's pre-Watergate, right? Right. When the movie comes out, it's Watergate time. And uh -huh. by the time the 2008 movie comes out, conspiracy theories are the main thing. So in the, in the novel, there's a technical glitch that causes people to not get communication because a piece of paper slipped between the bell and the striker. Right, right. right. Yep. Very... Uh, faithfully shown in the film as well which is nice but instead of reacting like oh that sucks um they in the film there's just this hint that um they're doing it deliberately they're blocking us out by the time we get to the miniseries it is a full-blown conspiracy that the government uh, parts of the government are hiding information from the scientists and it turns out it's all germ warfare <laughs> it's like what well, it sounds like so, um the uh, remake of Manchurian Candidate. And that brings us back to the Ipcris file. Because that's yes. pretty much what it is, right? You have this progress of sort of the the films and the adaptation and the, the miniseries all reflecting the, the times of of the story. The other thing is, is in the 2008 version, it's super militarized. This book is militarized from chapter one. Right. But it feels completely unmilitarized compared to the way it is in 2008, where they're driving Humvee, Humvees, not you know just trucks, right? They're they're uh, they've got X-18 Phantoms, uh, uh, X-18, which is a real airplane, but not when Crichton writes it, right? Everything about this book is completely fake, but it's so good at verisimilitude. I I'm sort of rambling here but i really like it no it's okay I mean, it reminds me a bit of dracula you know the uh yeah. i mean there's the long gothic tradition of this must be true because it's a it's a manuscript it's a document that we found mm -hmm. um so so there's that and in fact you know the intro uh, where creighton says you know i relied on all these experts to tell this true story is right you know it's a kind of classic gothic move um 
Or if you want, you can go more contemporary and think Plan 9 from Outer Space, right? You know, the, <laughs> the, the opening, you know, uh, we must punish the guilty, reward the innocent, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. This is, um, uh, as a Cold War document it's it's really fascinating although it's it's funny that it misses the uh, the great age of paranoid thrillers which is about to unfold in the early 70s yeah. i mean you know imagine watch this side by side with oh uh parallax view uh, right you know um or if we want to think more recently think about say captain america winter soldier you know uh, this is uh yeah there's this, this could be paranoid but i think i think Crichton likes spielberg really loves power and they they really want you to trust power i mean this is this is kind of like this is more like uh close encounters of the third kind where the authorities lie to you they hide things from you but it's for your own good you Mm -hmm. know like uh, like the end of um of raiders of the lost ark where the secret has to be hidden but that's okay it's for your own good i mean it's um I mean, I think there's a reason why Crichton often identifies with power. I mean, the you know, medical. I mean, he's one of the guys who makes uh, medical people into superheroes you know, mm-hmm. for the power they have over life and death. So, I mean, you, you, there's a reason why all these scientists are uber experts. And every step of the way, we have more and more expertise. Maybe this is one reason why the science fiction writers reacted so badly to it. I mean, on the one hand, it reflects their own love of power that you get a lot of power realization, power fantasy, science fiction. On the other hand, it um, flies against the way that so much science fiction is skeptical uh, about power. So resistant to power. Yeah. One of the things I don't think you would ever find is, is Michael Crichton at a science fiction convention. (laughs) You know, it just, it, it would be impossible basically, because even though he's writing what pretty much is science fiction, um, because it, it, it it doesn't come from the tradition. It comes from outside the tradition, and it knows about the tradition, but doesn't really care about it. Um, it is uh, it, it, the immune reaction, right? I think is that how you put it? Yes, it's it the is. Immu- immune reaction. Um, uh, this is not of the body. <laughs> you are not of the body. Bringing it back to Star Trek. No, Landrew. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, the other thing that I found out that I I thought was so cool. And so interesting in my reading about techno thrillers is I, I had remembered that um, the reason Ian Fleming's James Bond series got popular was because people found out that JFK was reading James Bond, oh. the James Bond books. And that blew up uh, the popularity. It, it had been popular, but it blew up the popularity of the um, – James Bond books and the James Bond books are in the genre of techno thriller more than they are in the genre of science fiction. There, there's some right. fantastic stuff. It's got a lot of the, we are in power. We hold the reins of power, um, uh, jet setting. It's, it's basically all the things you think of as airport fiction, except they're not super thick, right? Those books are thin. Yes. Um, but then, um, get this, this is a, this is a really cool fact. Um, Reagan was a big fan of Tom Clancy. Right. And when he mentioned that he had been reading a book called The Hunt for Red October, it blew up and became a huge popular film. And I just, in searching for this, I found uh, a recent story from 2005, December. Uh, 
Ronald Reagan based his foreign policy on Tom Clancy books. President told Margaret Thatcher to read Red Storm Rising in order to understand Russia. <laughs> and if you've, if you've read Tom Clancy, he is very much a techno-thriller, right? That, I mean, he's basically, right, yes. if you did a, I don't know, an XY axis chart and you plotted his stuff, it would be right in the techno-thriller, right? His Jack Ryan character starts off as a wonk, policy wonk, right? He's a, a historian, um, Navy guy. Then he gets, uh, you know, a CIA job. And then he becomes the vice president and eventually he's the president. Right? <laughs> it's right in the center of power. As the books progress, uh, he is he's you know working in Washington. He's um, stopping single-handedly, uh, you know, the destruction or whatever by nuclear, whatever. All that sort of uh, Hunt for Red October sort of techno thriller. We've got this X-18 you know, remember that movie Firefox? From Absolutely. Clint Eastwood. The great uh, Cold War, War uh, Russians have the technology better than us sort of thing. Um, that is right in the center of, you know, it's like political fiction written for the jet set audience. And it's very sort of uh, conservative, um, uh, Heinleinian, right? But... It, Heinlein went to the uh, Heinlein attended the science fiction convention, so it's okay, right? He he's in because he went to the science fiction convention. But Tom Clancy, I don't think he ever went to a science fiction convention, right? Well, it'd be hard to imagine like doing cosplay of Andromeda's train characters. Well, I think you're sense. right. My, you know, yeah. Yeah, he might he might want you to license pay a licensing fee. Um, my son just uh, discovered this um, Niven and Pornell. Speaking of Larry Niven, uh, alien invasion novel called Footfall, mm-hmm. and uh, um, he was having a blast with it. One of the things I'd forgotten was I don't know if you guys have read this. It's um, mm-hmm. you know, a- aliens invade and and it's um, the science fiction writers of America save the day. The yeah. the president is very smart and forms a committee which is headed by Robert Heinlein. I mean, it's this guy. He's Robert Anson, I think. Um, and you can have fun picking out who the other writers are. And they, they advise the president on how best to defeat the aliens, which is a lot of fun. Um, so that would be kind of me, either the Antichriton. You know, here you know, in Andromeda's Train, science fiction doesn't really matter. Science matters. Uh, but there's no reliance on you know on, right. the, on the history of science fiction. No That's one right. says, "Wow, this is like a thriller from Galaxy." You know, um, in fact, it that, it kind of leaps over science fiction in a way. Maybe this is part of the anxiety that uh, it it makes a lot of huge pronouncements about science. I mean, like this, we've had physics crises before and chemistry crises, but this is the first biology crisis. Right. And, you know, that's uh, it's really kind of outflanking the ghetto. And that's that's not going to make uh, the ghetto happy. No. And uh, of course, that that has come to pass. Right. Um, when uh, Steen and I went to the Los Angeles 2006 WorldCon, uh, Ben Bova, Gregory Benford, um, Greg Bear and one other dude were all talking uh, were there and they were talking about how they are on the president's advisory council. Maybe it wasn't the president. Some advisory council thinking up scenarios in which the United States will be attacked, right? 
how, and of course, this is very Larry Niven sort of thing where you, you say, how, if I was a terrorist, how would I destroy the United States? And right. this is this, this, um, the homeland, this, you know, the homeland is under it, under threat. Let's think up all the possible scenarios in which we could be destroyed and then fund the shit out of it, right? And that's actually what this book is too, right? Wildfire is they build this giant facility on the possibility that they're going to f- discover an alien uh, life form. Um, presumably, they they thought it was going to be cl- like a, a UFO, but right. it turns out to be a microbe. But this is also very Cold War contingency planning, where you you generate a lot of scenarios and you have to be prepared for all of them. I mean, this mm-hmm. is. In the 60s is where you have the Rand Corporation helping generate all these, um, right. and where you have scenarios planning going on. No, I mean that, and and you have a ton of money dedicated to it, which which makes all kinds of sense at the time. I mean, if you're in an existential threat, um, if you're facing an existential threat, then this is what you have to do. Steen, have you got some notes that you uh, wrote up? Oh, I, I did like the odd man out thing because I remember I read some. Um, um, 60s stuff about nuclear stuff, and they they said they like to have the people who launched nuclear missiles be single man because mm. they they will follow orders more than somebody who has kids. And I thought that was interesting that the guy who could turn off the um, the nuclear bomb was a person without kids, so he could. His name was Hall. I yeah, thought that was Hall. funny because he should have been called Corridor because he's always <laughs> running down <laughs> corridors. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I thought that was interesting though because um, it may, it makes sense because if you're a single person it's like you're not. I, I, don't know. I didn't understand that. Did, does it make sense? Because it, first of all, the nuke's going to go off, right? Yep. So, so nuke's going to go off, and who do they pick to turn off the nuke? Is the single man? Yes. He doesn't have kids, so he's he's looking out for the welfare of everybody. But it's only going to kill. It's only going to kill him. It's not going to kill his kids. No, but it's. it's gonna uh good point i'm not sure it makes sense i'm not sure it makes any sense you're right in that context it doesn't it makes more sense with the nuclear missiles yeah you're right the the married man be more likely to 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 let the nuke go off you know what you're right he would be because the same thing kids (laughs) i think i think this study actually didn't happen right like i don't think like there's a study (laughs) they they this hypothesis, the odd man out hypothesis, I don't think that it's a legit thing. I think it's another one of those things that Crichton made up, like the whole book, right? And so it sounds good. And uh, the first time I watched the movie, I never thought about it. Um, but after I was uh, after I was reading the book, I was like, okay, there's something weird about this. And then I'm watching the film. It's like, when they explained it again, I'm like, wait a second. How does this actually, like, they actually show the stats on the screen, right? Like it says... Married woman, married man, unmarried woman, unmarried man, and it was you know the odd man. Why is he called the odd man? Is that like the gay man? Because they in the two thousand eight movie they made him gay. Huh. <laughs> I was like the odd couple. It's like what, is this coding? <laughs> Am I not understanding it? Gay men are li- most likely to turn off nukes. Uh, this this doesn't make a lot of sense. But I don't. I think those criticisms, right? That are, you know, I'm talking about the levels being fake and the the having to run down corridors to turn off the switch and not sure. Like, all of that setup, it's cool, but I think it doesn't hold up, like, if you think about it too hard. 
yeah, it makes a fun story and uh, things to do. Yeah, and very much a very visual, right? Um, my favorite Crichton book is not this one. I, I do like it, um, but I, I think I, I really like it. But I like um, the movie version, I guess, of one of his books, Which Great one? Train Robbery. Yeah, that's what oh, yeah. It's terrific. And what's so fun about that movie is because of the historical setting and the fact that, you know, they're criminals um, and they they do all that sort of, you know, the timing and the pacing and the planning and the tricking. It's It's got all that stuff. And uh, yeah, it doesn't have any biology content, doesn't have any science fiction content, but it has that um, it has that sort of um, roller coaster. This, Roller coaster spark that he's very good at. Yeah, just you hit the ground running and it doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting that the opening of the book is actually observation. It's people staring. Right. Uh, and and we never really lose that. We're constantly, you know, we don't get in anybody's head. We're constantly staring down the hall. We're we're looking through the window. We're looking at screens. We're reading the printouts. We're always observing this. So it's it's not just fun fiction for Henry Kissinger say it's also fun fiction for people who want to be in the jet set. Yeah, no, I think it is. It it is the people, you know, like you're on that airplane. So you're not, if, if you're poor, you don't fly all the time. That's just a fact, right? That's true. The sixties. Yes. Well, no, even today, if you're poor, you don't fly all the time. You you can fly, but you don't fly all the time because you're you're limited. But who flies all the time? Politicians, but more importantly, bureaucrats, people who yes. are in the government and need to move around from place to place, do meetings, you know, they are of a class, right? And because of that, they need this functional material and it is reflective. So whether Michael Crichton set out to be, you know, a best-selling author, I don't know. What I can tell you is, um, he certainly fit the niche. And I think that that criticism that was so funny about all these science fiction people writing in science fiction magazines about how bad this book is, is it's because, you know, they're not, that's not them. Science fiction writers are poor. Right? <laughs> they have to save up money to get on that airplane to go to that science no, fiction. No, there is one exception. There was a recent article about... Um, Science fiction writers moonlighting by writing pornographic novels. Sure. And the highlight was uh, Robert Silverberg, who talked yeah. about pumping out something like six of these a month and uh, how he was able to live well. He had a new mortgage. He was able to eat out well, you know. Mm. Um, so that's – that's. but no one talked about that as opposed to, you know, Creighton, who everyone's talking about. You know, because, right. You know, um, but he he was also the exception. I mean, uh, even um, Lawrence Block and Donald West, like who also wrote right. science fiction. Uh, oh, sorry, they did write science fiction as well. But more importantly, they they wrote pornographic books. Um, they even those guys who were so prolific, I don't think they could do as much as Silverberg. Silverberg seems to have been a writing machine more than anybody else. Yeah, and one of the uh, Hugo um, collections. Asimov teases him by saying he uh, he heard that Robert Silverberg had a writing block. There's like five seconds where he wasn't writing, and it was traumatic. <laughs> that sounds like a criticism of Isaac Asimov, too. <laughs> right. A little projection there, you know, down to 400 books or something. Right? That's right. I got to say one other thing that uh, um, I really enjoyed about this book was thinking about his biology book, because 
you know, starting in the 80s uh, with people like uh, Paul DeFilippo and Bruce Sterling, there was a lot of call for um, uh, biology-based SF, that biochemistry would be the next thing after the digital world, that that would be the, uh, the next right. major scientific era, and we'd have life hacking, in the sense of actual life, uh, and that we have biopunk, and um, I think Filippo has a book called Ribofunk, um, mm. and you know we should expect that, and it hasn't really happened yet. I mean, we've had we've had biology-based stories. Um, also in the '80s, I would think of Frank Herbert's uh, The White Plague, for example. Mm-hmm. And we do have a lot of plague stories. Um, if you guys are interested, I do recommend a really interesting mock documentary plague story movie called The Bay. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's um, it's about a small town in um, Maryland in the U.S. that gets uh, attacked by an unusual biological vector. And I don't want to I don't want to ruin it for you. It's a bit disturbing uh, in all kinds of ways. It's found footage, but very smart. Mm. And it has a it has a wildfire vibe to it. There's a one of the uh, medical doctors immediately gets on Skype with the uh, CDC. And one of the running plots is the CDC desperately trying to understand this as it goes along um, and not being too helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's – but beyond that, um, or or nonfiction thrillers like uh, The Hot Zone, um, Mm -hmm. biology really hasn't superseded yet. I think it's going to take Moore's Law slowing down or stopping uh, for us to really switch our gaze over to the, the wet science. Well, I think also the fact that, you know, Michael Crichton was a was a bio guy. Right. And that's why we have this book mm, at all. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I point out, uh, I, I think I discussed with Scott in one podcast is there isn't really a cloning book. Uh, you know how there's, a, you know, there's there's lots of, you know, Wells did uh, a little bit of bio. Right. But bio is sort of the neglected science in science fiction. It. You know, physics we got. We we get a lot of math fiction too. Right. We get all sorts of um, you know, science, but we don't get a lot. And one of the reasons, uh, you know, there's a movie called Coma. Yeah. That's by uh, Robin Cook. Uh, Robin Cook wrote it, but um, uh, Crichton directed it. Right. He was a bio guy we got jurassic park now i'm not the greatest biggest fan of jurassic park ever i think it's good but it's not the greatest thing ever but what it does is it does bio and what's missing (laughs) is that uh the people who do science fiction um the writers there's not a lot of bio writers right larry niven is not a bio guy he might do a little bit of bio and you know, I I love me some protector. That may be my favorite yeah, favorite yeah. book. But he's not super big on the bio. And one of the things that you see in this book is bio, bio, bio. Right? It is all about. Um, I mean, you do learn a lot if you're reading this as a young person um, about uh, you know different chemical stuff and uh, biochemistry. And it really, I mean, it, one of the things that's in here is a really good uh, explanation of how electron microscopes works, right? I, I'm pretty sure that's in this book, isn't it? Yeah, the Scottish guy. Right, X-ray okay. X-ray so, versus light. Yeah, an X-ray, uh, uh, what, what's it? It's, um, 
the truck versus the crystallography, right? Yeah. Um, that's in, in here too. And he basically, Crichton is, he benefited greatly by going to medical school so he could give us a great book about um, bio stuff. It's not the greatest. <laughs> there, are th- there are things that are wrong with it. One of the things that's really stupid about this book and the movie is that the the infection is gone from all strains of the Andromeda strain, even though they say it mutated. Yeah, all at once. All the right. all of them mutated at once. Why did they do that? They had perfectly good humans to eat. Yeah, right? that was odd. And so, uh, in the 2008 monster movie, uh, monster horrible miniseries, which I couldn't finish, they they explain that uh, by saying, "Oh, it's communicating with it." <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> retroactively trying to well that's where you, that's where you get the digital logic right the, the it's like a it's like a it's a you know has a has a serious update or you know think about it uh, right, of say a right. blockchain uh, virus um see I, but the, if you did a blockchain if you did you did it that way i'd be more on board with it so they start saying well it's a crystal and crystals have harmonics and wait a second in outer space crystal what are they harmonizing oh. through oh man oh that sounds painful. terrible as yeah, they say, mystery science theater, deep hurting. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would I would add one more bio SF writer who I think is actually excellent, uh, and that is Joan Slonczewski, um, who has written. I mean, she's an astonishing. I'm a big fan of hers, just personally, because she is uh, a world class uh, biologist. I used to teach at Princeton. Um, she teaches with technology in some interesting ways. She has her students uh, contribute to a wiki on cell microbiology. Um, she loves her students. She's really supportive of them. And on the side, she's an award-winning science fiction writer. And in person, she's just absolutely sweet. She has like no no ego. She's really kind. How do you pronounce her name again? Because I've seen her books, but I didn't know how to say her name. Uh, Slonczewski, um, I believe, is the Polish um, – and her first book, uh, The Door into Ocean, is uh, about a planet covered – it's an ocean planet you know, covered with cover of water. And the humanoid species there builds advanced medicine uh, entirely without uh, silicon. So it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting you know, world building. Um, it's also a very, very strongly uh, feminist novel, the – uh, human species goes to conquer this, and it's run by a polity called the Patriarchy, capital P. Um, and her subsequent novels, uh, up until her most recent one, are all different versions of uh, space operas heavily based on biology, uh, often intertwined with the digital world, um, but but the biology is, is, is quite important. Her most recent novel um, is also biological, but that's less the point. It's a loving parody of small college campuses. Um, it takes place with well, the first one in orbit. Uh, it's called, uh, I think it's called the high frontier or high frontier or something like that. Hmm. Um, there is a really interesting life form. It's one that she's actually been studying, um, in her, in her professional non-writing work. Um, but I, yeah, I strongly recommend her. Yeah, that I, 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 I've heard a lot of good things about Door into Ocean, so I'm, not, I'm gonna have to check that one out. You know, um, uh, making me think of, of people who do bio. Steen and I are big fans of Greg Bear, um, yeah. at least we used to be. Yeah, Blood Music. Um, did he turn into techno thrillers? He did. He turned into techno thrillers, and that's when we stopped reading. 
<laughs> I guess that's where the money is. Yeah, he could pay his bills probably now. But uh, he also wrote a Halo novel, which... Uh, and my son right. is a big oh. fan of that. Okay, well... Um, but, yeah, Blood Music, the short story, is, is very uh, good. Yeah. But yeah. but the, I think the novel is excellent well, as well. He, he is... I found him, at least in his early work, his work that I really appreciated. Uh, there's a collection called The Win, uh, Win, for, Win for a Burning Woman. Right, that collection is terrific. Um, yeah. he, he has the quality that I think... Um, you you always describe to uh, wild, yeah. <laughs> Brian. You call them wild. Um, his writing style is wild because some of the time you don't know what the hell's going on. Just like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you never have that problem with Crichton. But uh, Bear, great, powerful bio writer, right? When he wants to be, anyways. True, I, true. I, I think bio is is hard to do because I remember for some I is? thought of a Pontypool. I don't know if you remember that movie. And oh, it's yeah. bio, but, but the thing is, is that it is very hard to get things across to the viewer. Mm. And it's like, you know, like you can see things if they're like a spaceship or a laser. But when it's bio, it's kind of hard to say this is what's happening. And I think because remember that was a really good movie, but still you didn't quite know what exactly was going on. And that's what it reminded <laughs> me of when you're saying bio is that here's a bio. Very hard to get across what's going on. But that was a yeah. language virus, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, what, what, whether it was, uh, like, I thought, I th- think it's like, it's a prion, you know, it's like it, it, yeah. the protein that gets in. I, I think we, we don't get the word prion in this book, but we do get the sense of, you know, a protein that went wild and fucked you up because they're looking for, they're looking for anything. What, what's inside this thing. And there is a lot of looking through microscopes at, uh, at stuff in the, in the movie, which is pretty cool part of why it is such a cool movie um but it, it even that i was thinking about that self-destruct sequence right you know that they have yep they ha- they ripped that off in the um the worst part of the walking dead right what when they when have they, a, the they go to the cdc and they have a i guess a fake global thumeral nuclear device or something to blow up the place when the seals break. Okay, or, yeah, I forgot about that. I'm, I'm still in uh, yeah, the road now. That's the least good part of, of The Walking Dead. They, But that's because it's not in the book, right? Whenever they stray too far from the book. It's also the not the CDC building, just so you know. <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> I had a feeling. Um, that was a, but, yeah, there's the, one nice bit in that scene, though, where he uh, shares secrets, right? That's actually one of the few bits where we uh, yeah, learn something about the plague. Yeah, but there's like – it's a, like a four-episode arc where basically they just sit around uh, talking. <laughs> no zombies. No no existential threat. The, the threat there is boredom. <laughs> well, yes, but what you learn is that it's worse than it sounds. Well, Steen, we, have we, you gone we to that point? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. It's the info dump where where uh, it spreads no matter what or something, and um, everybody has it. Right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think that that's that's better because that's that's why I like about The Walking Dead is it's a symbol for regular death, right? It's like we're all cursed. We all we're all infected with this disease called death. And then we're confronted by the horror the horrors of seeing your family members being dead right they walk up to you and say ah well, you have to <laughs> like, kill them. No! that's right and then you have to kill them again <laughs> there's uh, it's it's um uh, there's a good bio story 
Yeah, that one is a good biostar. I, I give you that one. It's not. They don't do a lot of microscopes, but it's a good biostar. No more electricity. Well, maybe we should expect to see more of that. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm very fond of the intersection where the digital and the biological mm-hmm. overlap. There is one more bio story just to, I guess, you know, in direction of wrapping it up, which is uh, John Varley's series, um, Titan. Um, have you guys read this? Mm-mm. Nope. Uh, there's three books, Titan, Wizard, and I forget the other one. Um, it They take place in what looks like and i haven't read it since they came out a um a giant space station in the orbit around saturn and um they're all filled it's completely filled up with uh, life forms created by an intelligence uh, that can then mutate them and as the books go on they get stranger and stranger um what the results are uh where basically you get something like a replicator where through advanced genetic engineering and the ability to uh edit life forms you can produce pretty much anything you want so i mean i think the third book features a uh, hundred foot tall uh marilyn monroe monster shambling around destroying <laughs> things um so i mean those are i don't think they're varley's best i think the first book is pretty clever um I mean, I like his early stuff, especially his early short stories and things like the Ophiuchi Hawk line. Um, but I think I think those those are those are interesting. Um, just uh, to throw a few last things in, there's a novel um, by Alistair MacLean, uh, who I'm a fan of normally, uh, but I haven't read this novel uh, called The Satan Bug. It got turned into a movie, which I have. Right. How- and that's sort of a pre-version of the Andromeda Strain. How is it? Yeah, it was good. Um, it's not as good as the Andromeda strain, but it's it's um, yeah, it's got a you know a disease so deadly, blah blah blah. And I was trying to think back, like where where does where does the techno thriller really begin? And I think you know if you were gonna give a name to it, I would say so. Satan Bug is sixty two. That's what the Wikipedia entry says. I haven't read it, um, but I think for me it starts with uh, probably this book um andromeda strain but i was trying to think like okay there's got to be a precursor right something that uh, wait hey that's almost a chemistry or bio thing uh-huh. yeah, uh, uh, accidental pun anyways um i did think back and there was a story which i read this week reread um by hg wells of called course. uh the stolen bacillus yeah which is a fun little story about a, a biochemist yeah. uh, who is in the laboratory showing uh, his um, his diseases, his <laughs> evil b- diseases, bacilli, bacilli to uh, an anarchist. And the anarchist is like really obviously an anarchist. <laughs> he's like, I'm an anarchist, basically, he's saying. And uh, the, the uh, anarchist steals the vial and runs off. And uh, the... Um, the biochemist chases him down and the police are after him and he, he's on a bridge and he says, I'm going to infect the whole city, <laughs> but they, they're going to catch him. So he opens the vial, drinks it and then jumps into the river and you think, Oh no, the whole city's going to get infected. And then the scientist says, Oh, he got the wrong one. He got the, the one that turns, uh, uh, people blue. <laughs> and it's like sort of, he diffused the whole, the whole genre for <laughs> killed the whole genre 
for like 60 years, right? That's like a caper. I know it, it, it's it's a very short story, and it's it's not really a techno thriller, except it in the sense that you know they can isolate these these diseases. Well, what what would you? I guess what would you make of? Um, oh, what's the uh, uh, what's the Wells novel about extreme growth called? Um, oh yeah, um, uh, Food of the Gods. Yeah, uh, I remember the. Uh, it begins by with some scientific hand waving, kind of like the beginning of a uh, time machine. Hmm. Where it says, "Well, growth has always been like this. Well, right. what if we can accelerate growth?" And then you have the. Uh, but if I remember rightly, the second half of the book is really political satire. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it is. I, I mean, I think that's the whole point of the book. But he does have this nice um, explanation, as he does always, right? When he does these great books, where he he does a a linguistic maneuver that convinces you whatever he's talking about sounds right. Yes. (laughs) Right. The the science works. Here's how invisibility works. Well, here's how regular visibility works. Oh, okay. I got it. And then you're, you're in for the whole show. And he does a very good job in the food of the gods for that, but it does turn into, yeah, uh, sort of a political book. And I think that that's why it's not as well loved. And it's certainly not a techno thriller in the normal sense. That there's a, so, so there's this thing about techno thrillers is they are sort of uh, fawning on technology, right? They are fawning on bureaucracy and power and and uh, government uh, operation, right? The function of government. Uh, if you just think about how the hunt for Red October works or yes. anything like that, it's yes. very much a um, this is this is the technology they have. I've got a stack of Jane's fighting ships beside me. Therefore you can trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm a professional. Well, right? you need to have that. You need to have the, uh, the love of scientific detail. There's a level of competence, which really, really matters. Um, and I guess, you know, you have that in the first part of the 20th century, um, with the, uh, you know, the Edison great brain inventor, you know, uh, that story, but it really takes the Cold War mm. shock and specifically the Sputnik shock um, mm. where the U.S. is no longer uh, capable of defending itself. Where um, So it's kind of like the British invasion novels. Um, I don't mean the British rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Invasion, no, no, I know. Uh, um, where they, um, you have to unman or threaten uh, the country being unmanned. That's um, right. And – you know, in the in the uh, Light of a Thousand Suns uh, audio play that that you shared, the uh, yeah by James Follett or Follett, I can't remember. How yeah, it's not that Follett, but the other Follett um, is in. You know, the the British are in competition with the Soviets to try and you know, con- you know, the Cold War keeps going, and they have to, uh, you know, they can't be outraced, and they might be. So that that's that's part of the, you know, part of the deal is you've got to have that that threat. Now, so you've got fifty years of this. And then the Cold War ends, and then the techno thriller just kind of keeps yeah. spiraling out, trying to yeah, figure out. it's it it's in decline, it's in rapid decline, and, and not because Tom Clancy's uh, dead. Uh, they figured out a way to solve that. I just saw this month. They, they brought him back from the dead. Well, he's been he's been writing books from the dead for a while, but now. <laughs> um, it's it's Tom Clancy at the top. Doesn't even say Tom Clancy's whatever. Right, and then the name of the book, and then at the bottom is the author, but it doesn't even say Tom Clancy's. Wow. Right, 
it's like he's just a brand oh. like James Bond now, right? But yeah. it made me think just what when you're thinking about uh, – the, the, remember in the Bedford incident, it starts uh, – Steen hasn't seen this yet, but uh, he's going to watch it, I'm sure. Um, yep. At the beginning of the movie, they're in a helicopter. What are they doing? They're landing on a ship. They're important people. They're landing on the ship, right, being brought in by helicopter. Well, it turns out that they're actually not important people. They're important people for us because they're viewpoint characters. Right. But what the difference between that and the hunt for Red October is the main character is being specially flown out there because he's such an important dude for this particular thing. Right. He's he's got to hunt that Red October. (laughs) And so it's the massive expenditure. And we see that a little bit in the book here and they do it in the movie as well, where they have massive government expenditure for the competent man to get to his uh <laughs> get on that airplane and get to his flight right um they have a empty uh seven it's not a 747 but an empty jetliner with one person on it right just to get him to his destination he's so important um and that vicarious um thrill is really a part of why these books are fun. I think and an empty jetliner would be a lot of fun. That sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I fly no, a lot. I, I that would be awesome. <laughs> it would be. It would be awesome. So it is a bit of a fantasy um, <laughs> for all the people on board. But uh, it's also it's the power fantasy, right? The yes. fact that everybody can drop what they're doing. And w- one of the things that they say in the book and in the movie uh, is, uh, "Ma'am." Uh, it's our job to keep your husband alive, right? We're not arresting him, right? He's the most important person right now. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> the viewpoint character, right? <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of that. And I totally see science fiction uh, writers who, <laughs> who see the massive success of this book. Uh, you know, it's on the New York Times bestseller. My book's better than this. Yep. Right? <laughs> and then... Uh, and and by the time even they are writing the reviews uh, in you know the latter half of 1969, it had already been sold to the film for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is not a small sum back then. Right. It's not even a small sum now. And yeah, that's that's what it is, right? Is that it? They can't relate. And this is our bailiwick. Get out of it. What are you doing? Don't do it better than us, right? I did like how nice and short it was, too. It's nice and short. Not drag on for another eight hours for no reason, too. So that's... It rem- yeah, it reminds me of, um, I mean, the total length being short, and also the uh, the prose style. It reminded me of um, Teen Coons, where every paragraph is, like, on average, what, two sentences? <laughs> zip, 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 zip. Yep. The, well, Dean Koontz is one of those guys who he he's manages to be an airport writer without actually having any knowledge of techno thrillers, right? Well, because he's um, his, horror instead. Yeah, his version of of this story is uh, Phantoms, where uh-huh. it's like a monster underground. Yeah, yeah. Which is a good book too, but it's it's. Uh, oh, I was just thinking yeah. of the movie. Huh. Yeah, uh, the movie's not good. The movie's not good. No, that's that's one of Peter O'Toole doing anything. Um, <laughs> Peter O'Toole trying to get some no, this money. Is, for this is this is so weird because I, for my work for the past, hmm, 
15 years, I fly between one and six times a month. I mean, that is one and six trips a month, and that can be mm-hmm. up to, you know, 30 flights or something. Um, and so, you know, I, I carefully curate what I'm reading on planes, and uh, I rarely read thrillers. Uh, I do read stuff depending on the flight. Sometimes I'll pick things to keep me awake that aren't too challenging. So that's when I first read Game of Thrones, for example. Mm. Um I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of George R. R. Martin's early stuff. Um, yeah, it's great. Thrones, it, seemed, it wasn't going to be as complex as, say, Gene Wolfe. It, it was, but it would be complex enough to keep me engaged and awake when I had to stay awake. Um, mm. But let, let me ask, if I can ask you two guys, um, in the futures biz, we've been talking a lot about techno-thrillers as good ways of getting at the future because they have to imagine the future in many ways. Is there anything current that you think is especially future oriented that you would recommend? I, I, I picked one book up called Ghost Fleet, which was an imagining of a of a China uh, Sino U.S. war, uh, where the uh, which was interesting. It was it was very naval technical, very uh, very Tom Clancy. Is there anything that you guys would recommend along those lines? Modern. <laughs> Neuromancer, but that's ancient. That's ancient, and it's, no, I mean for the past five years or so. Yeah, five no. years. I don't. I don't think I've read anything modern uh, that's a techno thriller. No. Um. Uh. You know, I read. I read. Uh. In the last ten or fifteen years, I read a lot of those. Um. James Preston is it Preston? There's usually another guy. Uh. The Relic is one of their books. Douglas Preston or something. Um, and those are those are okay. They're they're uh, they're but they're more monster the monster of the week than they are uh, yeah. technically. Um, uh, w- what I think is cool is that the the movie still holds up as sort of almost uh, a technology that is is doable and re- reasonable. It's almost a period piece now, right? Yes. Um, but I would say in the novel. Uh, other than you know the punch cards style <laughs> computer stuff, it's pretty modern as well. I mean, the, the they're missing a few biological tricks that have been you know there's there's no CRISPR in there, right? Right. Um, right. But it, it's pretty up to date, and I, I think that that's pretty uh, pretty cool. But yeah, I'm not sure that I think the techno thriller genre is sort of in massive decline because whenever they try to generate a a monster like the soviet union it just collapses under the fact that there is no monster like the soviet union right and even the monster that was the soviet union wasn't the monster that they thought it was yeah uh that's what there's a lot there's a long emphasis on china um a lot of there is but it is china doesn't engage right it doesn't engage Uh, the worst thing it's ever done is you know uh kept an airplane that that went into its airspace. No, they're right. doing the, the island building thing. That's kind of a little bit, but it's off their it's off their coast, right? I mean, what do you want from them? Yeah. So these have to be more futuristic. You have to you have to really put things together, and and you know you have to assume like ten, twenty years from now. Yeah, and and of course that falls apart, right? Because yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I think I I think one of the values that that this book has. Um, and I think most of the techno thrillers have is that they don't set it in the future. Um, Hunt for Red October is not set way in the future. If it's if it's not contemporary, it's it's the recent past, right? 
Um, the technology might not exist uh, completely, but you know, it's it's there. But yeah, it doesn't maybe, get phony. It doesn't get phony like other things do when the future catches up. Yeah, well, it's tricky. I mean, you know, future future proofing right now is just it's just harder and harder. You're you're in a very tough business, Brian, because uh, the future is the hardest thing to predict. Well, the 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 best thing I've got going for me in terms of of um, survival in many ways is that education moves so slowly. That's my mm. main focus. So it's you know the education is largely trying to I wouldn't even say keep up, but trying to observe what's you know what's going on. So I mean I'm I'm working with people who are doing things like looking at blockchain for scholarly publication, looking at yeah. blockchain for academic certification, uh, looking at VR, as well as mixed reality for visualization. Um, but you know, the, I saw one thing that said Cory Doctorow was a techno thriller writer, and I thought that, that was I, I thought that was amusing because um, hmm. he I think he goes to science fiction conventions, so he can't be right. I but uh, on the other hand, that feels that kind of. But on the other hand, he does do that. He he is very um, uh, about setting it in in our present, and I you know I'm going back a ways to talk about Little Brother, but that is about. Um, you know, cryptography and that sort of thing. So ah, but Little Brother is entirely about insurgents. It's not the it is the, and the authorities are awful. And in fact, uh, one problem of the book for me is that the and I haven't read the sequel um, is that the yeah. we barely see the authorities. We barely get to hear their arguments. And in fact, bit, yeah, the terrorist strike that begins the book is never addressed or explained. It's true, which is it's a true. little awkward, but. It's it's not the greatest uh, writing ever. However, he is really good at info dumps. And when he talks about yeah. uh, turning your Xbox into a paranoid Linux, uh, you know, operating system, um, I buy it. Well, I, then let me let me ask about uh, Neil Stephenson, um, because would a Remedy count as a techno thriller? I, I've seen it on a list. I've not read uh, Neil Stephenson, so I can't say, but I've seen it on the list of techno thrillers, which is pretty funny. Steen, have you had a chance to? I, yeah. I, I, I don't like his stuff. I oh, want okay. to, but I don't. <laughs> well, this is. He's got a. He. I think he's got a sort of a uh, Kurt Vonnegut vibe. Yeah, he's got a sarcasm and cynicism. Yeah, I, which I'm not a big fan of. There are a couple of things about him that I don't like. Maybe three or four things that are pretty consistent. Um, and Reem D didn't really touch on those. Uh, it's also not as serious. It's it's a romp. It's a caper. Um, right. In fact, one of the funniest things. I mean, there are a lot. There's a lot of lot of humor. I mean, the, the villain is a Welsh Muslim terrorist, um, <laughs> which is funny enough by itself. Um, and you get you get some stock characters. There's a hilarious scene early on with a, a Russian gangster terrorizing a couple of people, um, very politely at times. Um, but it's it's a it's a caper about a drug running near Vancouver. Oh, hang on, hang on, east of Vancouver. I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact boundary i remember vancouver set up like um but it's um it's uh it's fun and, and stephenson has made info dumps like the core of his writing that's how right. he does things um but that would be one i'd i'd you know i, I would look at for a contemporary one mm-hmm. there's a there's a, a good list of uh novels that are techno thrillers according to some people but what makes one a techno thriller or not is it's a little unclear, uh, but you sort of know it when you see it, you know? Yeah, like, like <laughs> pornography. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. That's not a metaphor. It's not a sex thing. <laughs> I would... <laughs> this is literally the truth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's, that's what you we gotta, say. You gotta cut the grass if you know what I mean. <laughs> and I gotta mow. It's a Canadian thing in Vancouver. If you if you watch uh, yeah those Canadian shows we told you about, you yeah. don't need to come to Vancouver because they are they're like they're Vancouver. That is Vancouver. Yeah, it, yeah. it is Vancouver. You'll understand what Vancouver is like, and that's like yep, that's what it is. I've been to Vancouver yeah. a couple of times. I like it a lot. The one thing I haven't found that I need to go, it may be gone now, but the first time I went to Vancouver was around 99 or 2000. I remember being, um, I think I was in Chinatown and found a statue of uh, Hello Kitty that was like eight huh. feet tall. Huh. And uh, I thought it was a sign of the apocalypse. I've always been trying to find it again. Oh, that's <laughs> still there. I don't know if I, I don't, I don't think I saw that, but uh it's I like awesome. waving cats. Uh, that's what I like. The, the good lucky cats. Yeah, it's that's legit Chinese. Yeah, it's not not phony Chinese. All right, so uh, get the novel up here and then we'll get started, right? Somebody's washing the washing the dishes. Somebody's got to wash them. I ain't. <laughs> Y'all ready? I'll watch. Yep. What do you mean you'll watch? This is getting sick, man. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> you wash the dishes, I'll watch. <laughs> All right.